Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. I'm your host, Hilmarie Hutchison, and today we have the privilege of hosting a remarkable guest, Mary Justine Todd, the founder and executive director of Shamsaha. With an extensive background in international public health and human rights, Mary Justine has received numerous accolades for her groundbreaking work, including the 2018 Middle East Winning Woman Award. She's a real trailblazer in empowering women and providing crucial support services throughout the Middle East. Mary Justine, or should I say MJ, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Jumping right in, could you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your journey? Sure. So my name is Mary Justine Todd. Like you said, my friends call me MJ. I'm originally from Iowa in the Midwestern United States, and I came to Bahrain about 10 years ago. My formal background is in the area of human rights, international law, public health, But I feel that these formalities are less interesting and the more interesting part is the human story. And for me as a human, as a woman, the most important thing is to support each other and be compassionate and passionate at the same time in support for women. That's lovely. So how did you get into the whole human rights and being a champion for human rights? Well, I've been asked this question many times over the years, and I'll tell you the true story. So when I began college, I was a theater major. I sort of am still a loud mouth, and being on stage was fun for me. I did a short study abroad in West Africa, in Senegal, when I was about 20. I was very hurt by the poverty and the suffering that I saw around me. There was a particular moment after I had been in Dakar for a week or so, and I was feeling good. I was feeling confident. I had started to sort of learn the lay of the land, and I was starting to feel better, feel more confident, less nervous, and sort of scared about the very different surroundings that I had not yet gotten used to. And I was walking confidently down the street in central Dakar. I was with a group of friends. I hadn't always been sort of the leader when we were walking in groups because I felt so unfamiliar and unsure of myself. But that day I started to gain my confidence. I was feeling good. And as I walked confidently down the sort of chaotic city streets, one moment out of nowhere, I was confronted with a woman. I presume she had had polio, didn't have proper treatment, was homeless and lived her life on her hands with flip-flops on her hands on the ground on the streets of Dakar, Senegal. And as I was striding Quickly down the sidewalk, I was confronted with this moment. What do I do? Do I stop or do I literally step over her? And that's what I had to do to keep moving forward, literally physically moving forward. I had to step over this woman. And I came back to the University of Iowa and Iowa City, Iowa after this trip. And I just decided that I wasn't going to be able to live in my perfect cookie cutter air conditioned house knowing that such extreme suffering was going on in so many parts of the world. And I changed my major that year from theater to international studies. And the rest was history, I guess, as they say. Wow, what a remarkable story. To have that one experience in Senegal that then shaped all the decisions you made later in life. That's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind founding Shamsaha, how your background in international public health and human rights influenced your decision. Following 
that experience in undergraduate, I went into international studies and I was thinking more and more about that. And what I realized is that I want to support women. I have had personal experiences of violence against women and I know how damaging and profound that can be for women. And so the idea of helping women in impoverished countries and then specifically going even one step further of women who've been victims of violence was something that honestly just sort of organically emerged for me. Specifically, originally I was focused in, um, my work was in sub-Saharan Africa and I worked in the refugee camps in East and West Africa supporting victims of abuse in migrating communities. One thing led to another and I ended up in Bahrain and having brought that experience with me, both the educational experience as well as the professional work experience, I looked around Bahrain and I said, this is a modern progressive community, but there's this one type of programming that is lacking here. And I think maybe we could do it. So I had been the president of the advisory board and a volunteer myself, Columbia University Hospital Rape and Domestic Violence Advocacy Program. So I came to Bahrain with that as my most sort of immediate experience. I'd left directly from New York and was here almost. And so I came actually just with their little, it's called Dove. Their program is called Dove. I came with their handbook. I just thought maybe I want to do something like that. And I carried it around with me for about a year, actually, because I took a little stop off in China along the way. That's another story. But when I got here, I had this handbook and I just thought, I think we can do this here. So I met a lot of Bahrainis, really amazing, fantastic, beautiful, kind, smart Bahraini women that I spoke to in the beginning and recruited them as advocates for Shamsaha, if you will. And with the help of our early Bahraini supporters, that's when we kicked off in 2016 or so. For our listeners who don't know what Shamsaha is or what Shamsaha does, could you unpack that for us a little bit? Sure. So Shamsaha is the first and only full-scale domestic and sexual violence crisis response program that operates in the Arab Middle East. We operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and provide support to women who've been victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, trafficking, any type of gender-based violence. We do also support men, of course. We don't discriminate, but the reality is the vast majority of um, victims of violence are women. And we have sort of conceptually put a female sort of angle onto the organization of Shamsa onto the brand, if you will, because the Middle East is often operates in gender segregated communities. So we wanted to be sure that women, perhaps from traditional communities, um, were not going to feel alienated or that our services might be inaccessible if there was men around. So we do provide support for everybody, but primarily it is for women. And we operate out of Bahrain, but we also focus our operations throughout Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Oman, and Egypt. We are in the middle of our regional expansion project, taking our services from Bahrain, which was a successful model, and implementing them throughout the region. What an amazing concept and an amazing service that you're offering. And as you said, so Shamsaha is offering crisis support services for victims of violence. Can you elaborate on the importance of providing culturally sensitive support in this context? I'm hesitating because I'm thinking, where do I start? Because it's such a huge question and a hugely important aspect of our work. So let me answer that by saying one thing. One of our most key and important tenets in all of our work that we do at Shamsaha is, you might be surprised to hear, is that we never, ever, ever give advice. 
Why? Leish, they would say. Why do we not give advice? We don't give advice. We give information because I am in no position to tell you, Hilmarie, or anybody else what is best for you and your family. Even if we are from the same country or we speak the same language or happen to be from the same religion, you have a different family culture. You have different expectations. You have different hopes and dreams. And so that is just amplified when you're working with women that come from communities that might be different than your own. So not only do we, for example, teach our volunteers about intercultural and cross-cultural communication. We teach them about Islam and about peace and violence and misconceptions in Islam. But we also teach them about bias, about subconscious bias. We want to make sure that everybody knows that everybody has biases. It's not about not having bias because we're all humans and we all live in this world and we're all subject to the same media messaging, right? But it's about knowing what to do with those biases and making sure that your biases don't accidentally affect how you interact with women. I would say that Yes, our programming is culturally tailored to be relevant for the region. That's absolutely true. More importantly, it's simply culturally open and respectful to everybody. Because what culture really are we in the Middle East? I mean, Bahrain, just for example, it's more than 50, 50% immigrants. Dubai, I think where you're at, it's more than 90% expatriate community. So really, what is our culture? I mean, that's a very big question. Scholars till this day will argue what really is culture, not to mention the fact that we are such a diverse group of people in this region. So our key tenant is to simply be kind, compassionate, and open to everybody who reaches out for support. Could you maybe share a success story of a woman or a group of women who have thrived and made a lasting impact within their community as a result of Shamsaha's initiatives? I get asked this question a lot about success stories. And the sort of difficult truth is that success looks different to everybody, right? So what success is to you or me might be totally different for someone else, in particular, someone who has just been a victim of violence for maybe months and years. So success to them might be very, very small incremental step telling you like, I don't know, a big, glorious, hyperbolic success story. I think I'll just actually tell you about something, a case that we're working on right now. We had an hour-long conference today among our team just before I came here, rushed home to record this podcast about what do we do about this case. So there's a particular client right now. I won't say what country she's in or where she's from just to protect her identity, but she is an expatriate and her husband is a national. She has been experiencing physical abuse for years. She also is developmentally delayed. So she, in and of herself, she struggles to even sort of understand exactly what's going on around her. Her developmental delays, I think, have colored everything that's happened to her and even her getting into the marriage in the first place. Ultimately, what we've been able to do is provide her with support in the courts. She's managed to have translators. She has getting her therapists in her mother language. Like I said, translators in the court and translators for her lawyers. We have lawyers for her. We've offered her lawyers with the translators to make sure that she understands the court process that she's going through to make sure that she understands and she has somebody advocating for her in terms of the custody arrangements, custody agreements, as well as alimony, providing her with the therapist. So this case is ongoing right now. But what the hope is, is that not that she will reach some predetermined successful destination for her future, but that she herself 
will not become a statistic, will not become someone who was killed, will not become someone who develops post-traumatic stress disorder because she was alone and traumatized throughout the entire experience. We hope that with this support going forward, she will simply become a normal member of society that knows she wasn't alone when she went through maybe what was the hardest time of her life. Thank you so much for sharing this story. It certainly does help us to understand how Shamsa is making a difference and an impact in the lives of real people. So as you say, it doesn't have to be big stories, but every single person that benefits from the services, they feel the great impact of what you are doing. Right. There's an old cliche, something like, you may not change the world, but if you may have changed the world for that one person or something like that. And everybody matters. Everybody's life is the most important thing in the world for them. So if we can help them move forward, simply just not be alone, then it can make the world of difference for that person. And then shui shui, little by little, you know, you've affected a lot of people. And let's not forget actually the importance of the indirect beneficiaries. She's got two children. Think about the different kind of lives that they might lead having had a mother who is not disempowered permanently the way that she was when she was in this abusive marriage. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the Shamsaha mobile app. It's a remarkable innovation. Could you tell us a bit about it and how it's making a difference in the lives of women in the Middle East? The Shamsaha mobile app is available for download on Android and App Store and uh, the uh, Apple Store, just so if anyone wants. But I will say that we are relaunching a brand new, completely redone app next month. Why are we redoing it for next month? Because as it turns out, Hilmarie, building an app for anyone who hasn't done it before is really, really hard. We've been working on it for four years. The idea was once we launched the app, the services that we offer in Bahrain, using sort of old-fashioned methods, if you will, will then be available to millions of women throughout the Middle East. So we've launched the app in June of last year. Basically, there's a chat feature. Anyone who wants to reach out and speak to a trained, certified um, women's crisis advocate can do so for free, of course, in the chat feature. But also there's a list of resources on the app available. If you're not quite ready to talk to somebody yet, you can click on your country. Again, we focus in the GCC. And then from within the country drop down menu, you can choose any number of resources. So you can find doctors or lawyers or therapists that are available in your country. You can find information for all of the diplomatic missions for your embassy in your country, transportation resources, other NGOs, societies, societies, government resources, all are available there for sort of passive use. So it's just a clearinghouse of resources that women um, might need anytime they're going through any sort of gender violence or abuse, trafficking, if just hard time, emotional abuse. There's something that we also call the survivor support tools. Well, they're exactly that. They're tools to support survivors. For example, there's like a quiz where you can go through the quiz and see like, am I really facing abuse? Because abusers are are oftentimes really, really tricky and manipulative. And you wonder, like, am I crazy? Is it me? Like, you know, there's all kinds of gaslighting that's going on. And you just think it's you, you're going nuts. Why? Because he's telling you that you're crazy all the time. And so you can answer this series of questions and we'll be able to say, well, okay, our expert opinion, it sounds to us like what you're facing, you've answered yes to all of these questions is something that is unhealthy. And if that's the case, here is the number for a therapist in your 
our town. Here's the number for the police. Or you can click chat now and we are right there with you. An amazing tool. Fantastic that you've built this and pretty exciting to see what the new one looks like. So will it have a different name once you launch it or will it just replace the existing tool or the existing app? Yeah, it'll just replace the existing app. It'll just be available for anyone who's already downloaded the app as an update and then it'll just replace it. The idea was to simplify, basically. Like I said, for anyone listening who's ever built an app, you will know it's really, really hard. There's so much that goes into it in terms of the workflow and all the technical specs and wireframes and all of these technical things that I had to learn about as I went. But we decided, okay, simple is better because the simpler it is, the fewer opportunities there are for errors. And then with every error, then there's a bad experience for a user. So we didn't have too many, but we just wanted to eliminate them entirely. So the way it's going to work now is when you click chat now, you're just going to be put in an automatic queue. And then as soon as a volunteer is available, they will answer. But we've got 150 volunteers. So we anticipate there's always somebody going to be answering the phone and available for you. And I should say that we also offer more than 20 languages. We offer English and Arabic guaranteed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the additional language languages that we offer are available upon request. And very, very often we can meet those language needs pretty quickly. A wonderful tool. Now we're going to shift gears again a little bit and we're going to talk about entrepreneurs. We know the term woman entrepreneurs, quite popular. What advice would you give to women looking to make a difference through entrepreneurship, especially in the field of humanitarian aid and nonprofit work? I realized that I have become an entrepreneur and that I'm often categorized as an entrepreneur. I don't think of myself in that way. I didn't study business. I never spent a day in a business class. I always joke around about I'm really good at the content of this work, but running the business is something I've had to learn along the way. One of the lessons I think that I've learned, especially for nonprofit work and humanitarian work is I think you've got to do your homework up front and you've got to make sure that you're going to have proper support funding. I mean, proper funding. You have to convince the community around you, whether that's international grants, whether that's family foundations, um, corporate sponsorship. You've got to really get a lot of people on board, a lot of people invested in your program from the very beginning to give it a smoother ride. If you don't have enough money, your services, your product, basically in entrepreneur language and business language, your product is going to suffer. And if your product suffers, your business is going to fail. The only difference between running a nonprofit organization and running any corporation is that our quote unquote customers don't pay, which makes running the business 10 times harder. So you have to really, I would say, pound the pavement, do the legwork in advance and make sure that you have enough buy-in from funders and sponsors. And the other thing I would think that's, it's a choice, but I think I would have had an easier go along the way if I would have had a co-founder. It can be very lonely. You carry this huge burden. I carry this huge burden of fear of failure on my shoulders all the time by myself. I'm not worried that I will fail and Shamsaha will fail and it's like a personal blow to my ego. I'm worried about the promise that we made to the community. I'm worried about the victims that counted on us that will no longer have us. So carrying that burden alone can be very, very heavy. And also, I don't think any one person really has all the skills to run a successful business. So I think starting any endeavor with the co-founder brings a lot of benefits. I love that. I think those are really insightful um, comments that you've made there. And I like the idea of a co-founder having somebody there to share the burden, to share the load, which, um, as you say, your 
promise is not to make money, but it's to help people. So that's who you're feeling responsible for. Thank you so much for sharing your wonderful story. It's been absolutely fantastic. But now we're going to move on to the segment of our show, which is our Black Game Show. We'll ask you some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Shoot. Shoot. Uh, what's your favorite aspect of your work at Shamsaha? Just knowing all the time that there's women out there who maybe cry a little bit less or feel a little bit less sad because of the work that we did. Wonderful. What's one word to describe the impact of Shamsaha in the Middle East? Profound, I hope. Who inspires you? I guess all the women that came before me, all the women that came and fought this fight before me to help me get to where I am. The women of my mother's generation in the United States really fought this fight. They marched in the civil rights movement and they marched for women's suffrage and they took on a very, very heavy burden. And it was because of the fight of the women of my mother's age. Women my age had an easier time and allowed me to grow and thrive both academically and professionally in ways that I think were not possible prior to them having that fight. And I think that now, unfortunately, in many parts of the world, women my age and younger have kind of forgotten about the fight that our mothers fought on our behalf. There is a lot of presumption of safety. But if you look at my country, we are going backwards. If you look at the United States, women's rights are going absolutely backwards. And I fear that if we don't, like the younger generation, so I'm a millennial, I'm the absolute oldest first millennial. I was born in 1981. But if the millennials and the Gen Z women, if they need to pick up that baton and never forget that the fight's not over, they have to keep it going. I love that. Fantastic. What is one thing you do every day, no matter how busy you are? I'm sorry to be cliche, but I always, always play with my dog. My dog is my favorite person in the whole world. I think that pets, dogs in particular, are so special. Like that connection with nature and with their natural, organic, just sort of goodness is so important. Very good. I love that. I have two dogs and a cat. I absolutely relate. Thank you very much for playing along. That was the game show. That was pretty easy. Now, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you about your Greenpool moment. Could you share an inspiring or life-changing experience that you have gone through? Your Greenpool moment. Yes, this is absolutely a true story. And it's one that even just thinking about it at this very moment brings tears to my eyes. You might be surprised at what the story is, but I'll tell you the truth. I grew up in a sort of a poor family. My mom was a single mother. We didn't have a lot of money. I went to college, of course, but I had to take loans for everything. All of undergraduate my first master's degree, my second master's degree, um, my PhD was funded in a different way, but my first three degrees, I had to pay for all with loans and that included living expenses and everything. When I finished school in my late 20s, I was $200,000 in debt. And this was something that as a 20-year-old, I had no concept of how devastating that was going to be. I think sometimes you hear in the news, you know, about this crushing student loan problem in the United States. So I fell right smack dab in the middle of that. Imagine I finished school, I'm like 27 or something, and I'm going to go and get a job at a nonprofit and I owe $200,000 within plus interest accumulating every month. The United States, however, had a program that was newly implemented by President Obama. And they said, if you work at a nonprofit organization for 10 years, you work for the public good, then your loans will be forgiven after 10 years of payments. 
So I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try. And so I started making the payments and it doesn't work. Like you don't just enroll in the program and then you know, okay, 10 years, I'm going to be done. You pay and you pay and the interest accumulates and accumulates and accumulates. Actually, I finished school with about $180,000, not 200, but as of this year, I owed 200,000 because my payments didn't even cover the interest. So under the Trump administration, all of these applications were getting denied. Less than 1% of applications for forgiveness were actually approved. So I was absolutely so horrified, like I'm never, ever going to be able to pay this off. I worked for Shamsaha for seven years with no salary hoping that this government program was going to help me. There's um, an article about me. I think it's in Vogue Arabia from last year. And they asked me what was my biggest regret. And my biggest regret was taking out all of the student debt. Amazingly, alhamdulillah, maybe one of the greatest days of my life. Just about six months ago, I was informed that my entire student debt was forgiven because I had spent all of this time working for humanitarian causes. And it taught me that even when... The path is hard. Like I was not making any money. I was working 60 hours a week, banging my head against the wall, just wondering if this was ever going to work. And it taught me that even when the path is hard, as long as it's the right path, the universe usually comes back around to support. Wow. I've got chills. What a story. My goodness. That is crazy. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. And I mean, you weren't doing it for that reason. You were actually wanting to do the right thing. It just happened that by doing the right thing, you had this opportunity that came through for 1% of people and you were that 1%. Well, I'm happy to say that President Biden in the United States, he fixed the program and he closed all the sort of problematic loopholes that were causing applications to fail. So many, many more people now are getting approved. But I had no idea that was going to happen. I was just absolutely terrified that I would never be able to pay that off. But doing the right thing and sticking on this path in the end, it was, you know, the universe came back around and helped me too. I love the moral of that story as well. Even when things are hard, the universe pays back in the right way. So fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing your fantastic story, your inspiring life story with us today. It's been so uh, fantastic. And I'm so sure our audience is going to really enjoy this conversation. Before we say goodbye, could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you? And we'll also put this in the show notes. Sure. It's at shamsaha underscore M-E on Instagram. That's shamsaha underscore M-E like Middle East. And Mary Justine Todd, you can find us online. You can find our website or follow us on social media. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you again for joining me today. I wish you and shamsaha all the very best. Thank you. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.